Welcome to Disruption Blueprint with Shannon Spotswood from RFG Advisory. In this podcast, we help advisors grow their net worth, build their businesses, and maximize their independence. We've built an award-winning platform with innovative technology, comprehensive service, and a team of individuals who are experts in their field to serve advisors. Join us for this journey where we explore everything that has to do with running an independent advisor practice as we bring together successful advisors, industry experts, and innovative minds who are on the bleeding edge to challenge the status quo, foster new ideas, and create a path for advisors to unleash their growth potential. Now, on to the show. Disruption Blueprint was previously known as War Room Huddle. Please continue to enjoy this content as you build your practice for the future. Well, this is going to be a good day. Welcome to War Room Huddle, Matt Hoddle. Thank you. Happy to be here. Uh, You are in for a treat. We're going to be talking about how to build a high-performing team, how to create culture within your advisory practice. And we are joined in War Room Huddle today with one of my absolute favorite people. So Matt Hoddle is the CEO founder of Red Hot Consulting, managing partner of the Alabama Futures Fund, which is just a totally awesome early stage venture capital fund that is really shaping the entrepreneurial ecosystem here in the state of Alabama and really, quite honestly, in the Southeast. I mean, the companies that you all are attracting and funding are doing some really innovative things. And prior to his roles, both at Red Hawk and at the Alabama Futures Fund, Matt held several operating positions where he was deep in the trench in a lot of different industries, building high-performing teams. And I think what is you know most special to me about today is Matt is also my strategic coach. So we spent the first two years of building RFG advisory when we were tearing the house down and creating 2.0, I mean, pretty much on a weekly basis, working through how to build culture, how to align mission, vision, values, how to hire for, you know, key team members, how to build high-performing teams, all the things we're going to talk about today. Good. I'm excited. And why I think this is such an important topic, it is one with after five minutes or so of spending time with an advisor and you hear about what their frustrations might be. It might be, you know, I'm not growing at the rate. I'm not attracting the type of clients I want. I'm frustrated about my team members. I'm frustrated about how I'm spending my time, my practice, inefficiencies. You know, there's a real laundry list of issues that advisors face. And what's so fascinating to me, when you really start to peel back that onion, inevitably you kind of land at the same starting place, which is, do you have the right people in the right seats doing the right things? Yeah, absolutely. I think people forget, or maybe even the advisors themselves forget, they're basically running their own company. And so they're responsible for everything. Um, and And in the early days, you're emptying your own trash, right? You're, you're, you're stamping your own envelopes. You're doing all of those things. And, and you have to acquire these skills. So whether you came out of another practice where all that was done for you and now your own independent advisor, you're having to learn those things, or maybe you started out that way, but you don't inherently come in knowing any of this stuff. Like you have to figure it out. And even I think seasoned advisors will tell you like, Hey, I'm good at this, but I'm not great at this. One of the things you hear all the time is that, I don't think I'm great at talent, right? I don't, I'm not great at recruiting it. I'm not great at developing it. I'm not necessarily great at retaining it um, outside of maybe a few key personnel. And that just gets worse right. the bigger you get. It's like exponentially worse. Well, and I think that's such a great place to start, which is let's talk about talent. Uh, one of my kind of biggest grievances with our industry is that we tend to hire by really looking for every box to be checked on a resume. And as a result, we have individuals sitting in key roles that might not necessarily be the right person for the right job, even though on paper they show up as the ideal candidate. So talk to us about hiring and and talent and how do we do this? So you – basically have two schools of thought. You have the experiential experiential hiring, and then you have the behavioral hiring. And that's 
kind of lofty terms, but basically what it means is an experiential hire is I'm looking at a resume. I'm looking at what title they had before, what roles and responsibilities they've bullet pointed on their resume, you know, uh, where they were before those kinds of things. And that's fine because people start thinking, well, that firm looks like my firm or that looks like the title I'm hiring for those bullet points seem okay. And all of those things. But the problem is, is that lacks all the context, right? It lacks all the performance data. And, and, and what I mean by that is if you look at somebody, for example, let's say you're hiring a junior advisor, right? That you're bringing on and you, you hope to cultivate them over time or whatever the case may be. And they're coming from a Merrill or they're coming from, um, you know, an Edward Jones, or they're coming from something like that. And now you're bringing them into an independent practice. Everything about that experience is now different right? There is not a team of admins running around. There is not this huge marketing department. There isn't this necessarily huge office building. Um, the training program may not be in existence for an independent advisor yet, like it is in some of those places. Everything about that experience is different. So assuming somebody can go from that environment to, to your environment, even though on paper it looks like a match, is a, is a false equivalency, right? <laughs> You're expecting them to go from this to that and not have any kind of shock around any of that stuff because what they did over here versus what you're asking them to do here, very, very different, and that may not show up on paper. The other problem with it is that it doesn't get into how someone has behaved and what attributes, and we can talk a little bit more about attributes, but what attributes and how have they behaved in the past because industrial psychologists will tell you Past behavior is the best predictor of future performance, right? It's how you're wired. If you've done it this way in the past, you're likely to do it that way in the future. So now it's a question of can you make those things fit? So let's talk about, you know, attributes and hiring for attributes. And, you know, what does that, first off, what does that even mean? Right. And then as an advisor, how do you start to compile that list of attributes, which would be markers for success within your organization? Right. So first you have to take a look at what are the, and when we say attributes, what I'm talking about is things like creativity, adaptability, competitiveness, um, need for achievement. These are the things that make someone who they are, right? Not experiences. I've done this. I've checked this box. I've had this experience. I've, I've had this title. I've worked at these places. This is how have I been creative in the past? How have I been shown adaptability in the past? How have I shown um, you know, need for achievement in the past? Give me an example of where you've been competitive, things like that. And if you want to go down the the you know, the, the psychology of it, there are reams and reams of electronic paper on all of this stuff about how do you do behavioral interviewing and how do you screen for attributes. But at the end of the day, if you're uh, an, an advisor trying to grow a practice, you're looking for things that are not going to show up on a resume. And you're looking for some of those traits I just said, adaptability. Every day in your practice is different than, than yesterday. And every day after today will be different than today. And so if you don't have somebody who thrives in being adaptable, um, competitiveness, if you're in a growth mindset and you have people on your team that are not competitive, you're going to struggle because you're going to be dragging them every time, right? And, and not only that, but every time something changes and somebody who's not adaptable, they're going to be uncomfortable, right? They're not going to move with you. They're not going to perform for you. Um, need for achievement is one that you, you, you see a lot, you know, problem solving, the, the list goes on and on. Now, how do you know what you need as far as attributes go? I would start with who do you already have on the team that's a high performer? And, and what are their attributes? If I look across, if I have Shannon on my team and I go, oh, you know, Shannon's ambitious, right? She's competitive. She's adaptable. She's a problem solver. And I can go down the list, right? She's my high performer. She is, if I could have 20 of Shannon, I could take over the world, right? So now you know what those attributes are. So if you already know that, you know in the composite what you're looking for in new talent. And I think what, you know, one of the things that you really coached us up on when we were doing this, you know, several years ago, and now it is written into our DNA about how we hire. And as a result, you know, I'm not going to take a victory lap here, but as a result, we have built a really high-performing team. But we didn't get there overnight. I mm -hmm. mean, this is something that took a long time. And one of the exercises that you had me go through, because there is such a long laundry list of attributes, is, you know, first and foremost, and I want to talk about this, first and foremost, you have to really laser focus in on your culture. And what are those attributes of success within 
your culture. So I think that you made a really valid point, and this is important for advisors to be thinking about as they really think about, critically think about their culture. Am I in a growth mindset or am I in the stage of my practice where we're really just nurturing the client relationships and we're not as interested in growth? Or, you know, where am I in this life cycle? Because you had me go through this exercise of these are my three non-negotiables. If you don't have these three attributes, it doesn't matter. You could have all the experience in the world. You will not thrive and be successful and ultimately be fulfilled working at RFG. Yeah. So I feel like, you know, there is such a broad, such a broad list that you can draw from of these attributes but you've got to, you know, almost start by narrowing that field of vision to like, what are the three non-negotiables? And sometimes that's hard for people to do subconsciously because they're like, well, I'm making a judgment on the value of these people that I'm looking at. That That's not what you're doing. It's all about fit, right. right? They fit with your culture. Your culture fits with them or it doesn't. It doesn't make them wrong and you right, right or you wrong and them right. It's just a matter of fit. And so you have to kind of, you know, divorce yourself from this feeling of saying, well, I'm making a judgment call on what attributes are, are, are the best attributes. No, they're the best fit for what I'm trying to do. Yeah. And, you know, as a, as a little window into, uh, into our, our world, for us, you know, number one on that list is we call it FIO, figure it out. And we are in a super <laughs> hyper growth mode. You know, if you don't have that memory, that muscle developed of like, I'm really comfortable in the deep end of the pool, figuring out things without a manual, which means I'm going to make mistakes. It's not going to be perfect. I'm going to have to iterate. I'm going to have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. So for us, that umbrella is figure it out. If you don't have that skill, if you really don't have that you're not going to be happy here. And there's a flip side to it, right? You have to be comfortable now that you've you've built this team that have those attributes. You also have to understand that there's a there's a counter to that, which is this is also a team that's going to take risks and they're going to make mistakes and they're going to push the boundaries, right? Because that's what you expect them to do. That's who they are. And so as a leadership team or as a manager, as an owner, founder of a firm, you have to take that into consideration, which is, am I on this journey with them or am I just saying these things? But as soon as I give them a little bit of space and a little bit of of room to develop and they go and do something I don't like, then all of a sudden am I pulling the reins back? Well, tough, right? This is the team you have now. Like you, you, this is, you know, cost of ownership, yeah. right? As far as your, your talent, your culture. goes. Okay. So now we're getting into the good stuff because, uh, you know, the, there's a lot of data out there that indicates that advisors on average spend 80% of their time on non-revenue generating <sighs> activities. So what wow. are advisors superpowers? It is prospecting and it is nurturing client relationships, but it is very easy, especially for the founder to be a bit of a control freak, to be very comfortable taking on and off that hat, everything from the trash collector to the, you know, executive decision maker. And they just get so wired into that role of I'm going to wear all these hats that they have a very difficult time letting go of the reins. So let's talk about kind of some, some preliminary steps for defining, because I think, you know, as, as you taught me, I think that the, the first step is truly defining the roles and responsibilities, both of the team that you have, what is everybody doing on your team and the seats that you need to fill. So how yeah. do you do that? Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. So if you think about it in, a, in, in the broadest term as a sequence, it's get the right people on the bus and then figure out what seats they're in. We have this weird thing that we do in in all businesses, especially in kind of closely held businesses where it's like, I'm hiring a specific person for a specific spot, right? That's really, really hard to do. And as opposed to going, no, I want the right people. And then like, eh, the positions can kind of move around. And RFG has been a good example of being able to do that, right? Which is this person's kind of a tweener, right? right? Or this is the ultimate, as they would say in basketball, sixth man right off the, you know, the first person off the bench. Maybe there's a, you create a role for the right person, right? You create opportunities or set. So I think that the sequencing is important. First, get the right people on the bus, then worry about what seat they're going to sit in, at least philosophically. I do think it runs through cycles, right? So as you've experienced, and I think other, you know, practices of firms have experienced is 
you get to the point where it's a new person or it's a new project or it's a new strategic direction for the firm, you're going to kind of pull it back in a little bit, right? And you are going to be a little bit hands-on and then that's going to, you're going to let the team kind of earn their autonomy over time, right? And start giving them projects and start saying, okay, I want you to do this. And maybe it's a project that should take three days. Did it take three days? Did it come back with high quality? Okay, good. Now I can give them a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And that allows people to kind of get over that tenseness of like, I'm just going to let it go and like (laughs) hope for the best, right? That's not what I'm suggesting. What I'm suggesting is think about it from the standpoint of, are you expanding? Are you decentralizing kind of this command control structure, which is how 90% of businesses work, right? 90% of businesses are out there where they have employees that are literally sitting there waiting to be told what to do. (laughs) And then they finish that and then they sit there and they go, okay, I'm just waiting for somebody to tell me what else to do. Um, And then of course, in that you lose all creativity, you lose all kinds of serendipity, you lose ambition, you get those people, if you have hired them to be, you know, uh, adaptable and competitive and all those things, we just kind of crush their soul, right? Because you've just said, no, you're going to live in this box and I'm going to send you an email every day and these are the things you need to do. And that's just not a way to expand a business. Right. And, you know, now more than ever, advisors have to be focused on talent because it truly, we are in, A, we're in a war for talent. Absolutely. And two, that feels like more than anything, more than the technology you employ, more than the, you know, niche that you've identified as where you're going to prospect it is going to be about who is in the boat with you. Yeah. Over, in particular, over these next five to ten years, as yeah. we're in the midst of this, you know, tremendous dis- disruption in the industry. Absolutely, and that's another reason why you look at the trade-off between, you know, a resume-based hire or a behavior-based hire. If you're looking behaviorally, that's going to widen your pipeline because maybe you're going to hire somebody from outside the industry. Right. Right. I I I tell this story all the time, but in a previous business life. Um, we needed somebody in a privately held company in a private equity group. We had a commercial landscaping group and we needed a salesperson to sell contractual landscaping as sexy as that sounds. Uh, And these are long, very expensive contracts, you know, two years, three years, they're tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. The best person I ever hired for that role was a former pastry chef for a James Beard award-winning chef in town. And everybody shakes their head and goes, well, what the hell, right? (laughs) But again, let's go to the attributes, right? If you know anything about pastry chefs, and I'll assume that if you're listening to this, you don't, just for the sake of argument, but they're in a tiny little room. They work by themselves. They're the last thing a guest sees. It is the thing that the chef probably cares the most about getting right. You have limited supplies. You're under terrible strain. And so all of these things come together that is you have to be have, have incredible attention to detail, perseverance, um, competitiveness, if you want to call it that, or just need for achievement, right? You are perfectly uh, uh, happy with being the last line of defense or the last experience a guest has. And so now translate that into what you need them to do in contractual sales. So forget landscaping for a second, but are they tenacious? Will they go after it? Are they going to make the third and fourth phone call to get them to pick up, you know, the call, the sales call? Are they going to follow through on the contract? Are they going to make sure the contract is correct? Are they going to be able to, to, to upsell once they have the contract? All of those things, well, those attributes directly translate. And so if I had gone in and said, I need somebody who has contractual landscape, you know, uh, sales experience, I would have had 15 people in town to choose from. But because I was looking for attributes, I had a thousand people I could choose from. And so that's how you start to do that. The other part of it too is this also helps you with ESG, right? If you are trying to create an inclusive and diverse environment, having a behavioral approach to what you're doing lends itself to that more fully than if you're going through, because this is not a diverse industry, right? Statistically speaking. And I'm not just talking about race. I'm talking about gender, right? I mean, you and I've had this conversation a bunch of times. You are so unique to be who you are as a woman in this industry, in the position that you are as successful as you are. We need to change that, right? And I think everybody agrees we need to change that. The more diverse a workforce, the more diverse a team, the more diverse thought, the more diverse of outcome. Well, not even the more diverse of outcome, the higher absolutely outcome. Yeah, the data, the data is undeniable. Yeah, the data is there. 
All right. So a little bit of brass tacks on you're sitting there, the advisor's listening to this, they've got, you know, a couple people on their team already. Where we're in, they're just having those, you know, they're at that point. They're just at that angst point. It's not efficient. I'm not growing. I'm not satisfied with my onboarding experience. Let's talk about some brass tacks of like step one, what do you do? And what you really have coached me up on and what what we do when we do the consulting work with our advisors is let's take inventory. Everybody's got to go through the painstaking experience. And I am talking in the finest of details, bullet pointing what you do. Yeah, absolutely. And I would go back to what you said earlier start looking at what are you spending your time with that are low value activities, right? LVAs or whatever you want to call them. This is the stuff you're spending time on that creates huge opportunity cost. And again, opportunity cost being if I'm doing A and not doing B, there's a delta of value between those two. And in that delta is your opportunity cost, right? So I really- Say that one more time because that's so good. Say that one more time. All right. So opportunity cost is basically, let's say A is of, of- you know, 10 points worth of value, or let's say this is a a revenue generating thing that you're doing over at A. B is I'm making sure that the the custodians are getting paid, right? Or the people who empty our waste baskets are getting paid. That's one is obviously of value. One is of not value. And the delta between those things is the opportunity cost. So as I'm spending time doing the low value thing, I'm losing the opportunity cost over here on the more valuable thing. So I would start with that how often am I doing it? This is where people really hate it. Start (laughs) writing down what you're doing. Keep a journal and keep a journal almost as if you're billing for your time because that's what you're doing, right? You're just billing yourself. That's the difference, right? So if I spend 15 minutes, you know, looking at a custodial bill, right? That's 15 minutes I didn't spend doing something else and start looking at that and start going, okay, how do I group these? Um, it's why um, office managers and admin can be just the difference maker for any advisor, right? If you have an all-star management team, back office, um, front office, admin staff, that's why you see so much value there. But it can be in other places too. It can be in your technology, right? Or, 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 or is your staff struggling with the tech that you've asked them to right. use? They don't know how to use it. The, the, the tech's not working, right? Their laptop doesn't boot up. Who knows, right? But every time you have to stop and you have to go do that and you have to make a call, and it's, right? So maybe that's it. Take inventory of what those low value activities are and just keep a journal and start seeing what are the themes here? What, is the, what are the things that are happening often enough for me to solve for that with human capital? And what we always find when we go through this exercise, you know, if, if you have the advisor, you know, the junior advisors, whoever are in those, you know, those, those client service producing roles, in addition to the full team, you know, whether you have a marketing department, technology department, you've got an admin or two, however, you know, an office manager, whatever that structure looks like. What you end up finding when you take this detailed inventory is how much crossover (laughs) activity. So let's talk about, you know, you take inventory, then you define the roles and you really, I mean, this, you turn into a traffic cop on this stuff. Mm -hmm. You're like, no, no, you're outside your lane. That is Matt's responsibility. That is Shannon's responsibility. Like you really have to take those once you identify how everyone's spending their time, assign them to the right person in the organization and then ensure that they actually stay in their lane. Yeah, for sure. So how do you do that? I mean, this is something that is uh, we find in the consulting work that we do. This is where the discipline comes in. This yep. is really easy to do in the first meeting, you know, when you're when you've got all the consultants in the room and you're everybody's yeah. geared up and the whiteboards are full yeah, and right, you've got right. all the energy. And then you circle back three months later and everybody's just kind of reverted to yep. mean yep. to the tasks that they were performing the way they were performing before you had the strategic offsite. Yeah. So so in the scenario that you have, let's say a strategic, you know, plan or you have some tenants or or whether it's, you know, some people do mission statements, some people do strategic statements, whatever the case may be, the step that people miss is translating that specifically to your team members. That's great. We have a corporate strategy. Now what? Right. right? So if you have a corporate strategy that the, the tendency is like just kind of inherently or, or y- y- you just look at it and you go, well, everybody gets it. 
everybody understands this, like intuitively, like this just makes sense, right? Because you're looking at it, because you're the person spending the time at the 10,000 foot, you know, 40,000 foot view, however you want to say it. You got to make sure that that translates into the thousand foot view. So it's literally taking what is important and what are the priorities for the firm? And here's your role within those things, right? This is how it happens. And, it, and, and, and it's funny too, because you'll go through this exercise and you'll find out pretty fast that your staff doesn't realize even the things that they just do out of routine and their impact. So let's take, uh, for example, um, somebody's role and responsibility is to make sure that the, the lobby has water and coffee in it, right? And they think, well, you know, it's just water and coffee. It's just a nice thing to do for clients. It's all that thing. But what they may not understand is that cascades into a service first mentality, right? right? If someone, we want a client to feel like they're coming into their own office, like they, this is their office and we simply work here, right? We want them to feel comfortable. We want them to feel at home. We want them to feel a sense of ownership or, or, or stakeholder uh, as a stakeholder, whatever the case may be. They don't necessarily make that logical jump, right? They don't intuitively understand that this is part of a larger thing. And so taking those big themes, taking those cultures, taking those priorities, taking that strategy and driving it down to the department and, and the department to the individual level, depending on how, how big your firm is, right? They don't, they won't necessarily get there on their own. Make sure that you draw that picture very distinctly for them to understand that you may not think this is a big deal, but this is how it services the firm in a larger sense. Two things come out of that. One is they get a better understanding of it. More importantly, it makes the work more important. Right, right. Are you an advisor looking to make the move to independence? RFG Advisory is an innovator in the wealth management industry with a winning culture and a fully integrated tech platform designed to help advisors take their practice to the next level. Let us get to know you at rfgadvisory.com. Well, and you've, you've touched on something that um, I think is really interesting. And everybody, you know, there's that great saying, it works so well, so we stop doing it. <laughs> <laughs> or we just keep doing it because we've always done it. right? Um, yeah. So we're all guilty of that. Like, oh, that works so well, so we stop doing yeah. it. Um, and one of the things that, that we encounter as it relates to tying together the roles and responsibilities and and why the work matters to your mission, to your value system as, as an organization, is having intentionality around the cadence of communication mm -hmm. on the team. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm, I'm consistently kind of surprised at how few advisors have routine set meeting times, both with their business partners and with their team, and then don't use that time with their team to reinforce all of these. So talk about best practices for establishing cadence within an organization around communication. And it's shifted, right? So our generation, when we got an email from the boss or we had, a, had to go to the boss's office or whatever, it was like the oh crap moment. Right. Like, this is not good. Like, I don't, I don't want this. I don't want anything about it. Like, I don't need the feedback, the like I'm something. Yeah. There's just like, I'm running for the hills. That's shifted now, right? The next generation, whether you call them millennials, Gen Z, or whatever the case may be, but the Gen Xers of us, for those out there that are in that category, like we were perfectly fine being left alone. Like right. we would prefer it. That's not the case anymore. Right. The, 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 the cadence now that seemingly is more popular and seemingly creates more productive teams is small, short, concise, and frequent communication right? Whether it's an email that every day, like, hey, this is what we did great yesterday, or this is what we need to clean up, like the good and the bad, right? Um, I've seen it where that's, that comes from the top down and they send it company wide, like this was really great yesterday, here's an opportunity, right? And that happens every single day. There's other ones, which is uh, the scrum practice, right? And I, you guys use, I think, some of that uh, here as well, right? It's this idea of stand-up meetings for 15 minutes, right? you know, this, the idea of a sprint in the scrum methodology. And if you don't know that you can Google it and, and spend a whole lot of time figuring out all the in acronyms. Yeah. In that <laughs> rabbit hole. Um, but the point is, is that, that I think what it is now most effective is think about very concise, 
very frequent uh, communication with your team as opposed to sending them out across the Rubicon and then checking in with them a month from now. That's not going to work. And if you're not sure where to start, start with a list, like a basic list, right? Here are the things that we have on our list to do and then keep going back to that list. Asana is free, right? Go use Asana as a software, as an example, if you want some place to start. Everybody can have access to it, super easy to use, right? Zendesk, whatever, mm -hmm. I don't care. Use something that everybody can get to and just start there and, and modify. But again, concise and frequent. And, you know, what we find is a, is a best practice and what we do internally is, you know, we have formalized meetings. So we have a real intentional cadence of communication as a leadership team, as functional teams, mm -hmm with my two partners, Bobby and Rick, and then we do all hands huddle on and on Friday. And one of the things that I think is most, and that's granted, you know, we're running a large organization that's scaling and growing very quickly. If I translate that into an advisor practice, I think baseline is really being intentional about setting at least one meeting weekly with the full team and using that time to go back and reinforce what are our goals for the year? What is our mission? What are we, what is our higher purpose of what we're doing? Reinforcing that every time to your point, everyone on your organization should be able to pair it back to you. Like, what is your mission, vision, values? What is what we do? Why is what we do important? Yeah. I, and I think that's a really good point not to get lost in the larger conversation is it's kind of that gut check moment. If you can walk around your, you know, your firm, your office, whatever, and you say, what's the number one priority for us in 2022? And if you ask three different people and get three different answers, <laughs> you're in trouble, you're in right? Trouble. Or you're just not optimized, right? And so, and that's something that we, I will do with clients and I'll ask them to do it and they will hem and haul and make excuses of why the answers weren't quite the same, but you know, they're on this, <laughs> they're in the general ballpark and all this stuff and it's fine. But the issue is if you are going to have a cascading kind of matrix, right? Where it's like, this is what is important. And then these are your, everybody's roles within that, you know, the importance or, or in that matrix, you can't then have somebody saying, well, you know, our biggest priority is growth while somebody else is saying our biggest priority is wealth preservation for our clients. And then somebody else says, you know, something else. So I think that point is a really important one. And I, I love your perspective on it because you're so deep in the trench uh, with all the work that you do with early stage startups. <laughs> you you sit on the front line yeah. of really witnessing the difference between disciplined execution and kind of hopes and dreams. Chaos. And yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Chaos. Yeah, for sure. You're being nice. It's definitely, it's definitely, <laughs> and it can be intraday, right? It can be like, oh, we're really super focused and disciplined. And then by after lunch, like who knows, right? Um but no, that's exactly right. And I think the thing is, and this is where I think people uh, get it wrong. They think I have to be a certain size before I start exercising this discipline, that I have to have so many people on my team before it matters. No, the reality is, is that it is a reflection of leadership and your leadership style and how you're doing it for yourself will then translate for your team. So I don't care if it's you and an admin. I don't care if it's you and a junior advisor and an admin, like that's still plenty of opportunity to act with that discipline, not just because it's the right thing to do and because it's, it's, it makes sense, you know, philosophically, but that's how you start creating repeatable and scalable processes. If, if you can't sit there and look at something you're doing and, and ask yourself, will this scale? And the answer is no, especially in early stage, stop doing it or figure out how to come up with a better way of doing it because you're just buying time, like you're, you're, de you're de uh, delaying the inevitable, right? If you're doing something every time, like it's the first time you're doing it and you've done it for the thousandth time, that's a problem, right? And that's an opportunity to, to improve the process. And I'll tell you, it's really hard. This is really hard. I mean, we dedicated all of 2021 to, you know, we call it whack-a-mole, basically eliminating everything that was not repeatable, that wasn't scalable. And we've been incredibly disciplined over the last six years on executing and, and being really, um, really definitive as we're defining roles and responsibilities, all these things. And we still find ourselves in this place where we've created either an experience or a process or the way we're doing something that's not repeatable. Yeah. That is too manual. And I think that this is, you know, it's, it's, it really is a, um, it is rampant throughout our industry because ultimately, you know, we started this this 
this podcast talking about an advisor superpower is truly meeting with clients and closing new business. It is not running high-performing teams and hiring for attributes and, you know, really being, you know, somewhat cutthroat in defining how, what is your standard operating procedure and how are you eliminating one-offs and, yeah. and, and, and really things that are too labor-intensive. And our industry has just kind of like evolved around all of that. And now it's just rampant throughout. Yeah. Yeah. So this notion of creating high-performing teams and really positioning yourself with the talent to win in the future, I think is a new frontier for advisors. Yeah, I agree. And I think that if there's anybody out there listening or watching this and saying, I'm a really good interviewer and I really think resumes are important, I'm just going to tell you flat out you're wrong. You're not good at it, and that isn't the right way to do it. Um, and I'm just going to give you your medicine right now because the reality is that if you are not starting to look at how am I creating a team for the marathon versus the sprint, you, you're leaving money on the table, you're leaving growth on the table, you are not going to see your full potential, and you're going to continue to waste your time doing things that don't lead to those outcomes. And, and in case anybody's out there going, well, I'm not an industrial psychologist. I don't know how to do this. It's as simple as this. It's how you ask the questions and how you're identifying the attributes. That's it, right? You can ask the dumb question about if you were stranded on a desert island and you could only listen to one song, what would that be? You know, that tells you absolutely nothing, right? I have no idea if this person's going to be a high performer, right? I have no idea okay, how so they play. So give us an example. Like give okay. us one, a good interview question to identify an so attribute. So let's, I, I love adaptability. There, I will never hire somebody to work Especially for me. Especially in light of the global pandemic that we are 100%. living in. Oh, 100%. Adaptability has become probably one of the most important characteristics and traits of any individual. Yeah, let me give you that punchline in, in case we're not <laughs> being uh, specific enough. If you are not hiring for adaptability as one of your, your components or one of your attributes, you're doing it wrong. Because this is the world we live in. It's the, it's the industry we work in. So adaptability. Tell me about a time when you started a project that didn't go the way you thought it was going, right? It was going to happen. What did you do to change it? And what happened? Right. That's it. That's the question. And again, if you're not sure what kind of questions to ask, look behavioral interviewing up in your favorite search bar on any search engine, Bing included even, and they will give you a list, not just by attribute, they will give you questions to ask. This is very common knowledge. And frankly speaking, Almost all of the highest performing cultures and teams in corporate America are have ditched like resume based or experiential based hiring. And it's what's fun about this, uh, you know, you have to start with roles and responsibilities. You have to be really clear what is the position we're hiring for. And then once you have your list of attributes and your questions around hiring for attributes, it's so wonderful because you can just make decisions so quickly mm -hmm. on talent. Mm -hmm. You can have those interviews. Honestly, I have interviews that last 15 minutes. And granted, by the time they get to me, they've already gone through several interviews and they're, you know, they're ready for the next stage. So it doesn't happen often, as often as it used to, right. you know, five years ago. But, you know, now, I mean, I'll know within 15 minutes, like this person is worth continuing to invest time in. It's funny. And, and I, and I probably shouldn't promote this, but the, the reality is that's exactly what happens. You will get to a point where after you do this a, a number of times, and I've literally done it hundreds and hundreds of times, you get to the point you might get one question for each attribute. When you start doing this, you may be asking three or four per attribute. You'll get to the point where you'll ask one question and you know exactly what you're looking for or on the counter, the red flag of what you're looking for. Like I can't give you an example or maybe it's a hypothetical. It's not an actual example, like all of those things. But at the end of the day, you're going to look at it and go based on the hundred other one, you know, interviews you've done in this, you're going to have like that feeling and you're probably going to be right. Yeah. Yep. I want to circle back to advisor behavior modification because I love you all. I love all the advisors out there. It's why I'm in this business. But this is part of the Achilles heel of growing a high-performing team. And, you know, I, you know I, I think that it's a really interesting opportunity for growth within our industry and, and for opening up our industry for, um, you know, additional talent to be attracted to it. 
And it stems from, you know, kind of circling back to this like place where advisors find themselves, where they wear all the hats and they have very, very difficult time letting go, Mm -hmm. letting go of the role, not circling back and double checking to make sure everything got done that, you know, it's, I'm afraid I'm going to lose a client. I'm afraid that we're going to fail. I'm afraid that the experiences, you know, there's all kinds of justifications for why they hold on to those reins so tightly even after going through this work of, all right, we're going to establish a cadence, we're going to dis- define our roles and responsibilities, and we find ourselves, whether it's you know three months or six months later, where the advisor has kind of slowly kind of crept back out there and wrapped their arms around everything and have kind of returned to that position of, I feel more in control when my arms are touching everything. As someone who is also on that journey of learning how not to be a bottleneck, learning how to empower your team, what is the best you know piece of advice that you have for advisors for for breaking that to allow for exponential growth within their practice? And I think you'll agree with me on this, but it starts with that is a symptom of not having the right people in the right seats. That's where it starts. Right. Right. That I, I don't feel like I can be out of the office for 24 hours. Right. If you if you literally have like if you get anxious because you haven't been in the office or you've been meeting with clients or, or whatever the case may be, vacation. or you've been on, or God forbid, you know, you take some time off um, and, and that, that gives you some stress. Then that first of all, that is telling you you may not have the right people in the right seat. So let's just start there. The second part about w- what you do is data. Right. You have reams of data happening every single day. Right. Whether it's your your, whoever is running compliance for you can pull that stuff. They can pull activity. They can pull a bunch of different things. You can see um, projects. You can do whatever you, you have data. So harness the data and figure out the best way to go from a 10,000 foot view to a 100 foot view. And in this way. If you're looking at everything across the board, and let's say there's four or five things that you're really keyed in on that are um, lockstep synonymous with your overall strategy and priorities for the year, and here are the five KPIs or, or leading indicators or whatever you want to look at, and you look at those and you go, okay, the first one looks good, second one looks good, third one, it's just okay, the fourth one is awful. So first, I'm going to the fourth one, now I'm going to start drilling down, Right. The problem we have is exactly what you just said. Everybody lives at the 100-foot view, yep. right? Well, what is this person doing? How is this one thing getting done? Did somebody get called back? Did this happen, this happen, this happen? You've got to figure out a way of tracking your organization from a data perspective or from, from a perspective that allows you to stay, you know, G- Gary Vaynerchuk talks about like clouds and dirt. Yep. He only wants to live in the clouds. He only wants to live in the dirt. He doesn't want to live anywhere in between. Similarly, get those metrics set up that you say, if this, if it falls within this range, I'm okay, this range, okay, this range, across the board for all five of those things. When they're not, then you drill down. That's how you're efficient. And that's also, too, where you're going to start spending less of your time at the dirt, right, or at the 100-foot level, and you're going to start spending more time working on the overall performance based on those metrics and those outcomes. One of the, I think, a little bit of the elephant in the room oftentimes with advisors is they feel bad asking their admins to do work. Mm -hmm. And so then they start compensating and they get in the dirt. Mm -hmm. So how, if you've, if you've established that habit, if you're really not raising the bar and expecting your admin to be proactive in bringing solutions to you, they're not they're, they're just, they're not making your life easier. They're not a force multiplier on your time. How do you correct it? It's going to be question one. And then question two, how do you basically let go an underperforming employee once you've gone through this exercise of, do I have the right people in the right seats? Yeah. So first it comes down to, again, to selection. Did you pick the right person with the right attributes for the kind of performance you're asking for, for the kind of behaviors you're asking for? If you are looking for someone who is literally going to sit there and wait for you to say, okay, here are the 10 things I need you to do today, hire accordingly. Hire somebody who loves that. Hire somebody who is a taskmaster, who just loves lists and loves knocking stuff off lists, lives for that stuff, right? You can figure that out, how organized they are or whatever the case may be. If you want somebody who is going to be proactive, 
right? It's going to say, you know, we haven't talked to this client in, in so many, you know, uh, weeks, or, you know, I'm looking at this and they now have a, a son or a daughter or a loved one that's now 24 years old, two years out of college, probably want to start talking to them about what are their financial plans for the future? And is that an opportunity to expand uh, within even that family? Hire for that, right? Hire for somebody who maybe they don't want to be an admin for the next five years or 10 years. Maybe they want to be an admin and they want to go and they want to start studying for their 65 or their seven or their six or whatever it is and encourage them to do that. But know who you're hiring. That's the first thing. If you have somebody who you have now and you're going, they just can't do what I'm asking, that's a time to have a conversation and say, this is ultimately what I need, right? Out of this position, is that something you're comfortable doing? You'd be surprised how often and honest people will be with you to say, no, I'm not. I'm not comfortable with that or I'm not comfortable with doing those things. If you get the bobblehead, yes, of course I am. I really love my job and everything about it, right? Then drill in a little bit and say that now this is what this means. When I say that this is what I need, it means you're going to do these things, right? You might be on the phone 50 times a day. You may be sending, you know, 60 emails. You may be going and running and doing things for client appreciation four times a week, which means I'm going to actually ask you to drive your own personal car to do these things. Like get detailed with them and make sure they're really comfortable with it. If they're not, have an open and honest conversation with them. If they say they are, they still underperform, well, then you're probably going to have to part ways. Again, think about this from a standpoint, not about them being wrong or a bad person or you being wrong or a bad person or, or, or having some anxiety about that. It's just no longer a fit. And here's the other thing that, that really bugs people or they don't, they don't realize it's happening is somebody who got you to where you are is not necessarily the same person that will get you to the next place you want to be. That doesn't make them wrong. That doesn't make them a bad person. They're just not the right fit for what you're trying to do going forward. There's an old thing, in, again, search bar this one, Jack Welsh and Dead Man Walking. But the idea is that somebody no longer was doing well in their job as their job now required them to do. Instead of being fired, they just slowly got cut out of everything. They weren't including in meetings. They weren't asked for advice. They didn't get projects and whatever. And sooner or later, this this person was showing up to work every day with nothing to do. Finally, somebody fired him. Six months later, eight months later, whatever, Jack Welsh is at some conference and this guy runs up, picks him up, bear hugs him. Like if anybody knows Jack Welsh, he's not ex exactly a huge guy, uh, but bear hugs and picks him up, has no idea who he is, doesn't recognize him at all, takes a step back and then realizes it's this guy that got fired, right, years and years ago. And he then goes on to explain, getting fired was the best thing that ever happened to me. I wasn't happy. I didn't like my job. I wasn't a good fit for this. I found this other thing. My, you know, my professional life is better. My personal life is better. My kids like me more. Like it was, you know, I've grown three inches, right? I don't know, whatever. <laughs> but it was this idea of like, you're actually doing something, somebody a favor. If, if you have to understand that people that are not performing in their job, 99% of the time are miserable, and they're self-miserable. They're not miserable because of how you're treating them. They don't want to be in this job. They don't want to be miserable. Yeah. And part of the reason they're miserable is they can't do what you're, asking, you're asking them to do. Them to. And this is, you know, I think this is so critically important uh, because there's a lot of guilt around, sure. like letting, you know, a lot of times. Especially these, a long-term admin. Exactly. Can you imagine? I yeah, mean, that, that's a tough thing to do. There's a lot of emotion around this. And some of the best piece of advice I got on this was from one of our board members who, you know, public company CFO of a couple companies, a founding board member of one of the, you know, one of the largest companies in America, hires and fires a lot of people and has built very high-performing teams. And he, he said to me, he said, by the time you finally let someone go, it's already too late. Oh, for sure. For sure. And that is, it is really, it really is true. And you're so right, especially if you're committed, if you're listening to this and you're committed to, I want to build a high-performing team. I want to be really clear mission, vision, values. I want to have a culture that I'm really proud of and is reflective of that mission, vision, values. I want the right people in the right seat. Like if you're committed to that journey, you are going to find yourselves at a crossroads where you have the wrong person in the seat. Yeah, absolutely. It is inevitable. It is part of the journey. And I think that, you know, you said it so well, it doesn't mean they're a bad person, you're a bad person. It's just not the right fit. That's right. 
That's right. And sometimes it just comes down to recognizing the fact that you, you, you're thinking about it in terms of like, I'm, I'm taking away their livelihood or I'm taking away the way that they generate income. That's true, but hopefully it's only for a short period of time. And the next place that they go into, they're going to come out of it with the knowledge and the experience of being in a place that was no longer a fit. They're going to know what to look for now, right? You're, you're, at, you're propelling them, you're forcing them in, in a way to get to a better place for themselves as a professional. So it's a weird way of thinking about like, I'm doing them a favor, yep. but keeping somebody around who's miserable doing their job and not performing serves no one's interest. Right, right. I want to touch really briefly on reviews. Okay. And we touched on feedback and communi- the cadence of communication, and there's certainly the work environment has evolved where people expect feedback in a much more frequent pace. Um, but we both believe in the power of a review and mm-hmm. really carving out the time. And, you know, little side note here, do not give bonuses. I, I, I can't say it loudly and boldly enough. Do not tie compensation to performance reviews. Yeah, if, if I wouldn't topple this table, I would jump <laughs> up and down on it. I absolutely 100% agree. If you, if you haven't experienced this yourself, you can picture it, but you have this really well-crafted, thoughtful, you know, um, pained over review, and somebody is literally hearing Charlie Brown's teacher as you're going through it because all they want to do is get to the last page and see what the number is, right? Divorce those two things from each other. Um, my recommendation is even divorce it like time of the year. Believe it or not. Like the thing is, is what's crazy about it is people will do reviews in November, December, and that's fine. Provided that you did a review previous to that some other time. So let's say you do every six months, right? You do a check-in every six months, say, how's it going? Like, how do you modify? If you're doing one review a year and you're doing it November or December, you're totally wasting the opportunity. (laughs) Absolutely. Because then what you can do is you can divorce that even the timing of those two things from the review to the bonus, you know, comp day or whatever you want to call it, um, for those two different things. And I, I wholeheartedly agree with those two things because they will not take on the feedback if the punchline is a dollar figure. Right. Right. So do you think that if you're looking to build a high-performing team that you need to have a formalized process around reviews? Absolutely. I think you start doing that as soon as you have a single employee. Yeah. I mean, I, I really, there's no, there's no firm too small to be doing this. And I actually think you do it twice a year. I think you do it about six months and then you can do one at the end of the year or you can do one at the end of, you know, uh, second quarter and, and, and one at the end of third quarter actually is pretty good. Fourth quarter gets a little nuts. It's also too, frankly speaking, when you are going to factor compensation. So imagine that you have a end of, of, you know, an end of Q1, an end of Q3, and then the last conversation you have at the year is that, you know, bonus, comp, whatever you want, however you're structured as a firm. Um, I've seen some firms push it into the next year, right. And actually have the comp, you know, or the bonus conversation in Q1, but think about it from the standpoint of like, you want them to get off to a good start. So if you wait six months, well, that's half the year. And if they haven't hit those targets or those big targets or those longer term goals, then now you only have what, six more months to make up for it instead of nine. Uh, and if you have a review at the end of the fourth quarter, um, then you didn't give them an opportunity in the last quarter to to change behaviors or change tactics or kind of have that. Believe it or not, most people are very poor at looking at their own performance, right? Because there's just a whole bunch of ego and there's a whole bunch of, you know, kind of emotional blocks to doing that. So you will be surprised how often you come to somebody with some constructive feedback and they go, I had no idea I was doing that, right? And then how do you change that and how does that, you know, improve in the future? Well, if you're doing it throughout the year, you're having the opportunity for that performance to actually have an effect on that current year. And, you know, part of the coaching that we, that you've really helped us design for RFG, just to share our experiences, we do reviews that every year it is the first full week of January. So the week of January the 10th, all reviews happen and then the third week of January is when we do our strategic offsites. So we'll do a leadership offsite, we'll do an all hands offsite. And that for us is really as part of our reviews is setting those individual goals, setting the firm goals, like making sure everyone is aligned, that we are 
working towards, and we're really, you know, and, and so much of this I credit to, if you don't have a coach, if you don't have an accountability partner, get one, because it really <laughs> does um, help with all the noise in your head. But, you know, part of this is as a result of your coaching, we don't sit there and have a laundry list of these are our 15 goals for the year. I mean, we'll have no more than three. Yeah, Absolutely. And now you might have intrafunctional team or individually something else that you want to accomplish on top of that. But in terms of a corporate goal that we are all like all oars in the water, there's going to be one or two. And I love the timing of that too, because I mean, somebody's getting feedback around their, their individual performance, and then you're asking them to consider that in a larger sense around the strategic vision for the next year. And I like the fact that you guys do it every year. I, I always get kind of that eye twitch when somebody talks about their three-year plan. Um, and I just, I kind of roll my eyes and I go, well, that's great. I, I hope you didn't pay three years worth of a consultant for that because <laughs> frankly speaking, you're going to be lucky to get, get nine months into your 12-month plan before you've already kind of, you know, um, made some pretty drastic pivots from that. So I, I do think that cadence makes a lot of sense. And I also think that time frame makes a lot of sense because I think if you looked back, there weren't wholesale changes to your strategy from, let's say, 2019 to, to probably what it's going to end up looking like in, in 2022. Um, it's an iteration. It's an evolution. I wouldn't say it's revolutionary, but it's significant enough that if you had tried to make a strategy work for longer than that, that probably would have been false economy, right? Or you would have been chasing the wrong priorities. Right. right. Uh, all right. A few more questions. The first is onboarding. In the war for talent and when you're hiring for attributes, how does a company go about, or even if you're just one advisor hiring an admin, how do you onboard them? So fun fact, you want to know the number, the, the number one and the number two most common shared social media posts about somebody's employment experience? Day one and the day they leave. Right. They'll go on LinkedIn, they'll go on Instagram, they'll go on Facebook or, or, or whatever the cool kids do now. And they will talk about their leaving a company. They're right? TikTok. They're TikTok. That's right. <laughs> Thank you. God, I'm old. So they but if you look at it um, statistically, you'll where there is poor onboarding, you will only get the second when they left. And they're doing that to let their networks know I'm available and come talk right. to me if you're interested in, in a conversation. But if you look at the companies that do outstanding onboarding, and Zappos was one of the first ones to really be famous for doing this, but now you see it now where it's like, I showed up and it was a brand new laptop still in the package. It had already been, you know, it had already been, yeah, programmed and formatted and, 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 uh, and all that, but it was put back in there. So it looked really nice. There's a nice folded t-shirt for the company's logo on it. Maybe there's a set of pins. Maybe there's a nice, nice little gift basket or something next to it. It's all right there, ready to go day one. And then day one includes, um, uh, sometimes they're called one up, one downs. So a meeting, uh, you'll have maybe coffee with your manager, your hiring manager. But then you'll have a one up, one down in some sequence in that day or the next day, which is you will have a meeting with the person uh, immediately above that hiring manager and then immediately below that, for an example. And the idea is that now I'm talking to a lot of the management strata, right? And I'm getting to, they're getting to know me and they know beyond just my name and the fact that I've been hired. Um, there's other things like, for example, the, the uh, I call it the owner's manual, which is like the 20 things you need to know right. about me. Right which this was something I learned from, um, uh, Andy Goldblatt. And he said, you know, don't make people guess what you like <laughs> and how you work. Just tell them. Right. And, and it's an opportunity to go both ways. So it's, you know, you, you literally on day one, it's the 20 things you should know about me. So for example, um, I love this one and you, you'll like this one too, like email, right? right. If you email me, I will respond within 24 hours. I make no promises faster than that. If you need something that's more urgent than 24 hours, you need to call me, right? As an example, that's how I work. I am really high energy in the morning. You're going to get nothing out of me in the afternoon, right? And that's just like, hey, I'm just giving you the owner's man. I'm giving you the playbook. And then I'm going to ask them the same thing. So you tell me, right, with these questions or other questions, tell me about you. Like, I really hate this, or I really love this, or this is what I get excited about. And you can formulate these questions however you want to do it. But think about it from the standpoint, just start with, what do I want to make sure that they know about me as a hiring manager? And that's a good place to start. 
but then it's just the soft stuff. It's just the, you know, is there, do, do you have screens in your office, right? Can you program on your screen? Welcome, Shannon. We're so excited to have you, right? You would be amazed at the reaction you get from the little things like that, right? Um, somebody, you know, finds out what kind of coffee they like, right? And so they show up and like literally that Starbucks order that, you know, that coffee shop order or whatever is literally being brought to their desk. That's their first impression and that will be enduring. And it will also be a reflection, hopefully, of your culture. Right. And if your culture is good, then they'll say, well, I know exactly what to expect now and this is gonna be pretty flipping awesome. Yeah, yeah. And I think that onboarding is something, especially now that we're living in this hybridized work environment, you have more employees that you're hiring that are maybe 100% remote working from home. This is not going to be a one and done thing anymore. Absolutely. You're no longer just going to onboard someone and, you know, away they go. Yeah, that's a, that's exactly right. So typically what you want to do is you want to think in cadences of day one, week one, month one, 90 days. Yep. Right. So what are the things that I'm doing to make sure that either those things happen again at those marks? Right. You know, for the first week, they're having lunch with a bunch of different people and coffee and, and just getting to know you're not really asking them to do a whole lot of work. You're just trying to get them in the culture. Then what does one month look like? What does 90 days look like? And I think that if you do that consistently, two things come out of that. One is the onboarding experience is much better. But here's the thing. You, what you're really trying to do is you're really trying to get them up to efficiency as fast right. as humanly possible. That's what your onboarding is for. It sounds great. Get them in the culture. Make them happy. Get them excited. That's important. But really your onboarding is to get them to peak productivity, peak efficiency as soon as possible. Yep. Amen. All right. I think we're, you know, anything else that we should touch on that we didn't? Man, I think we covered a lot. I think we covered a lot. Yeah. This has been so much fun. I knew it would be. So, you know, Matt and I are both strategy book, team building, performance <laughs> book junkies. Absolutely. Give us your... I don't think I can't... Now you say that, I don't think I've read a fiction book <laughs> in... I want to admit it. Like 15, 20 years. Like <laughs> if it hasn't been nonfiction, I probably haven't read it. All right. It. So your top, you're listening to this, you're like, all right, give me your top one or two books either on becoming a high-performing leader or building a high-performing team or how to build culture strategy? So first, be an aggressive learner. Read all of them as far as I'm concerned. I think they all have nuggets. I keep going back to time and time again. It's a well-worn but good to great by Jim Collins. Still to me is the one that has consistently um, kind of met the mark of time. Like it is aged the best. And I think even if you look at some of the, I mean, the book was written in 2001. Yeah. So if you look at the examples he used in that book of how these, you know, uh, concepts were used, they're still happening today. Yeah. And I, so I don't know that there's a better endorsement than that. And I like that Jim talks in concepts, right? He doesn't talk into the, the nuts and bolts. He leaves that up to you. So I think good to great is still, Probably the best one I've ever, I, I, I would recommend to anybody. I think I've given that book away like, yeah, 10 or 15 times. And then the other one I think for, for, for founders, leaders is the hard thing about hard things, uh. which I know you guys love. <laughs> um, I remember giving that book to Bobby and, and, and I think it was revelatory for Bobby yes. because it, it just, it, it verbalizes the things that you're going through in a way that other books have failed to do. And they talk about how hard it is. Might even be on. The yep, there it is. Here. It's right there yep. in the back. So, <laughs> so Ben Horowitz is part of is half of Andreessen Horowitz. If you're familiar with them, the private equity firm, venture capitalists. Um, but that's a, that's a read that is one of those things where you're gonna you're gonna read it and then you're gonna put it on the shelf and then occasionally you're gonna pull it out and you're just gonna read a chapter or two and then put it back and that's what it's for. So I would say those two. Or like my and top. it's interesting because, you know, um, they released, Jim Collins released that BE 2.0. Mm -hmm. And I agree with you. I still like good to great. Yeah. I mean, there's a bunch of. I need the revised yeah. version. I'm like, give me the, the source material. It, it's just, it holds up so well. And yeah. I, you know, from the flywheel effect to the hedgehog concept to like all of these things that he talks about, it's just, I mean, it doesn't matter. The tech can change. The marketplace can change. The culture can change. But those things just hit, I think, consistently regardless of those changes. All right, if we're going to throw some arrows. Yeah. The one that uh, I always hear people bringing up within our industry is traction. Mm -hmm. And I know that's one of your least favorite. It is one of my least favorites. I, let me let me qualify that. So I think if you're just starting out as an entrepreneur, you're just starting out on your own, I think it's a great book. And I think it's a really, really good starting point. 
my issue with traction is I don't think it scales well, and I don't really think it breaks off from kind of that command control matrix. It's almost like the military matrix. It's top-down leadership and all of those things, and you're asking people to hit these rocks and this this scorecard and these things, and, and all individually they're fine, but I think as a whole what it does is it creates basically, and I've seen it in practice with firms, is, is the your employees will feel like it's a burden. Right. You're, you're going to love it. You're going to love it because you're going to have structured meetings and you're going to have data and this stuff's going to come back and it's going to look awesome. And you're going to like, I really know what's going on with my business. Meanwhile, your people are like sitting there going right on their laptop going, not another one of these. Like, I I don't want to talk about my rocks anymore. This scorecard sucks. Like, I don't want to do that. So I think the problem is, is that I think that it's, 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 it's lopsided. Right. Whereas I think if you look at some of the the Jim Collins stuff, I think if you look at the pendulum effect, if you look at some other of those, it's again, it's like, how do I give people the space and freedom again in our industry? If you're not hiring creative, passionate, you know, competitive people and you're not giving them the space to make mistakes and grow and have that serendipity, you know, success and those things, then you're just not maximizing your opportunity. And I think if you put them in a, in a matrix that's so specific around reporting and, 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 and that kind of level of accountability for lack of a better term, I think it's just stifling to some degree. I mean, that's like a mic drop. (laughs) Sorry, Gino. I think your work's great, but I think it has a time and it has a place. And then I think you evolve from there. So just like anything else. So appreciate your time. It was wonderful, amazing. I knew it would be nothing but pure fire here in War Room Huddle. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Disruption Blueprint podcast. Click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. Visit our website at www.rfgadvisory.com or schedule a call on our advisor resources page. And don't forget to click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. Content here is for illustrative purposes and general information only. It is not legal, tax, or individualized financial advice, nor is it a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold any specific security or engage in any specific training strategy. Information here may be provided in part by third-party sources. These sources are generally deemed to be reliable. However, neither our guests nor RFG advisory guarantee the accuracy of third-party sources. The views expressed here are those of our guest. They do not necessarily represent those of RFG Advisory, its employees, or its clients. This commentary should not be regarded as a description of advisory services provided by RFG Advisory or performance returns of any client. The views reflected in the commentary are subject to change at any time without notice. Securities offered by registered representatives of private client services, member FINRA SIPC. Advisory services offered by investment advisory representatives of RFG Advisory, LLC. RFG Advisory or RFG, a registered investment advisor. Private client services and RFG Advisory are unaffiliated entities. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where RFG Advisory and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. No advisory services may be rendered by RFG Advisory unless a client agreement is in place. RFG Advisory is an SEC-registered investment advisor. SEC registration does not constitute an endorsement of RFG by the Commission, nor does it indicate that RFG or any associated investment advisory representative has attained a particular level of skill or ability.